past episodes, we spoke a lot about US funds coming to Europe from a VC perspective. We've discussed why now, how both incumbents and newcomers are responding to the opportunities and challenges, but at the end of the day, the impact can really be funneled into how this new source of capital is being distributed into startups within Europe. A challenging question that founders have to ask themselves is that in an ideal situation, who should they take money from? In this episode, we discuss how both funds and founders alike have addressed this question. But first, let's talk about starting companies in this climate. To quote my boss, Uwe Horsman from Project A, when asked why in 2022 is the best time to start a tech company, he replied, because it's always now. Quotes aside, or perhaps to add, it was pretty unanimous when interviewing our guests. Although granted, most of these interviews were slightly ahead of the more recent market wobble, that now, for a founder, is an excellent time to start a business. Harry Briggs from Emma's Ventures explains his perspective. Look, there's never been a better time to start a business, I think, in that you can now raise more money earlier and there's more and more knowledge you can tap into more and more talent pools you can tap into and yeah, more and more like help from the ecosystem to build faster. It doesn't mean that it's not incredibly competitive and that lots of great companies still struggle to get funding, but, but I think it's a founder's market and I, 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 yeah, I think I can't see much downside from it. Really. We've just been negotiating on a term sheet where the valuation probably ended up being about five times what it would have been five years ago, which means the company was able to raise probably twice as much capital as they would have raised in the past for much less dilution. They had their pick of probably 10 funds. You know, we were very happy to be one of them, but it's a really terrific time. So as touched upon in previous episodes, as well as what Harry just mentioned, in this market, you can get more bang for your buck. Plus, VCs really have to bring their A-game. Here's Brianne from Keen Ventures. I hope that founders feel like they have more options than ever before. It's certainly more competition in the market. Maybe valuations go up, et cetera. Who knows? Um, but I think one super bright spot of this for me would be if everybody has to up their game a little bit on terms for founders. I think lingering in the corners of cities around Europe and even in the U.S. are some pretty old school, like, there's no nicer way to put it, like pretty nasty terms, participations, ratchets, weird lever clauses, dividends, stuff that sounds debt-like that equity check writers have been getting away with. So I would hope that it makes everybody up their game a little bit and definitively weeds out firms that have been getting away with onerous terms for way too long. So I really hope that stuff like that goes away. Another interesting point that Christian, a serial entrepreneur who previously founded Wanderlust and now Pitch, points out that only has this influx led to more choice and funds upping their game, but also in some cases, a more favorable approach of how founders can build their business. So five years ago, for example, or maybe 10 years ago, even there was a huge trend in the industry around like you have to start a startup in the leanest way possible. Very small team, very little capital, and ideally become profitable within a short amount of time. Ship your product as fast as you possibly can. Ideally go to market after three, four months and try to find product market fit. And lately with 
significantly larger seed rounds, significantly larger A rounds, the process of inventing new products has drastically changed. Like most startups that are well-funded don't just try to ship as fast as possible anymore. They uh, actually invest a lot in user research, like specifically about pitch. One thing that is fundamentally different compared to Wonderlist was the time to market. So Wonderlist, for example, we've written that software within six weeks after we started the company, launched the product, and it was really unstable, super buggy, but we somehow made it and we've continuously improved the quality and we lost a lot of users along the way because they were unhappy, but we've shipped update after update to make it really solid and basically bug free. Pitch, on the other hand, I've, with Pitch, I've taken a completely different approach. I had basically in, in a very simple way, I had a product idea for a, a new type of presentation software that accelerates or helps teams to build amazing decks blazingly fast, but I knew even building the very first version might take me a year or two because it's so hard to build that type of product. It requires many engineers, many product designers, many marketers to really build it the right way and build it really solid. So the product development strategy shifted from lean startup, build something very fast to in the case of pitch. Take your time, build it very thoroughly, do a lot of research, and then maybe go live after two years. And I'm not sure yet if that's a great thing or not, <laughs> because I think it's probably something a little bit unusual. And Superlist, by the way, operates the exact same way. The company has been started in 2020 and still has to launch the product publicly. And it's intentional. We, we try to build the product the right way and not just as fast as possible because you, you can burn a lot of bridges uh, with potential customers along the way if you just lose data or have like unstable software and so on. So that definitely created a big shift in how you create new products for sure. Another interesting point that Christine makes is that as the European and US tech ecosystem matures, you're seeing founders exit and become investors. Think the PayPal and Skype mafias, respectively. This knowledge gets passed down to new generations. And understandably, Christian has a strong preference to work with those who've been there and done that. I really like to partner with founders, if that makes sense. With Index, for example, I partnered with Neil Reimer, the founder of Index, because I felt like this is someone I can truly learn from and understand, like, basically absorb that knowledge from 20, 30 years of doing venture across the globe. I also partnered with Josh Kushner from Thrive, which is on our board at Pitch. And I just often feel like the conversations you have with investors that have also started something or are in the process of starting something, those kinds of relationships can be really powerful and they can also be incredibly challenging. I had a lot of board meetings where I get pressured into launching something faster and so on, but I really like these types of interactions with investors. I like being pressured because it keeps my blood floating and it helps me to make the right decisions, maybe even faster than I would take them if I would do this all by on my own. Perhaps slightly tangential. But Christian tells an excellent antidote about working with one of his investors that is too good not to put in this series. 
Yeah. And I can only advise founders and investors to be really direct. One of my best friends actually was an angel investor in Wonderlist. And he, I think in the third or fourth year, he called me and said, Christian, I have to be honest with you. I really don't think you're doing a good job. I want to ask if I can sell all my shares. I don't believe Wonderlist is going to make it. <laughs> and it's maybe German relationships. I don't know, but I really enjoyed that conversation because I said like, okay, I understand that you have concerns. What are those concerns actually? Yeah, you've made some hires that I don't believe in you. Your product strategy doesn't really make sense for me. Like, okay, let me take the time and explain it to you. And if you really think it sucks or I take wrong turns and make bad decisions, then sell your shares, no problem. But my advice to you would be wait a couple of months and I think we're going to do quite well. And then we did do fairly reasonably well by launching a new iteration of the product and everything was awesome. But yeah, to this day, we're best friends. And I, I think that this is how you build great leadership teams, great founding teams and great boards really by, by being really direct with each other and help each other in the best way possible. Talking about great leadership teams, let's touch on the key question about how the influx of capital has influenced the European talent pool. Here's James, a partner at Balderton. If you do increase venture dollars in certain segments, a wages go up, right? And the cost of hiring great people in Europe, probably even three years ago, you would say there was an arbitrage play uh, for great engineers, great marketers, great operators. I would say when we look at hiring, certainly heads of VP level people in any of our businesses in, in Europe, they are benchmarked on a international scale, right? It's no longer like you're going to be well-paid for someone in France. It's you are going to be well-paid full stop across anywhere in the world. And I think that reflects partly the increased amount of capital, but also partly just the advent of uh, remote work, the ability of people to be competitive in a global talent space uh, and increased interest in, in these kind of roles. So, you know, that has fundamentally changed. And part of the reason for that change has been the increase of capital. This phenomena puts pressure on founders as in order to attract top talent, expensive salaries can lead to the dreaded down round as they sap the company's coffers. It will be interesting to see whether salaries remain as high as they are now as the market has dipped. Perhaps with remote work becoming more of a staple, having been the causation of the increase in salaries, now, potentially, employees may be more willing to place more of an equity bet and situate themselves in more affordable cities across the special jigsaw that we call Europe. Now, perhaps we should discuss the unique contributions that US funds bring to the table for founders to utilize. As you could argue that these patterns that we've described so far in this episode could have occurred regardless of whether US funds came to Europe or not. When we interviewed our guests, one of the most commonly stated facts about US funds is that they bring all the glamour. Here's Judith from La Familia talking about the topic. If I had to just give you a gut feel number, a 25% of founders that have this like you know, almost just like praying before the shrine of USBC type moment when they speak to USBC. It's just because we've consumed a lot of the content, a lot of the work through books, through Twitter, through blogs, through almost this, this magic cultural storytelling of, you know, what happened like with Sequoia and Lightspeed and like all these amazing firms. 
I think there's just a lot of general respect in the ecosystem, like a particular set of founders that I'm seeing, which I think is great, which I think, again, just shows that there is knowledge that's being passed on and there are stories that's being passed on. And obviously brands are incredible and these brands have been built over decades and they're pretty strong. To summarize, in short, Brianne from Keen Ventures couldn't have said it much better. If the U.S. is a marker of success for you, then it's going to look super shiny and uh, super nice. And there is something a little sexy and exciting about somebody flying all the way across the ocean or maybe a country and then an ocean to come spend time with you. Perhaps another obvious point is that there is more money in general in the U.S. for startups than there is in Europe. And by having a U.S. fund on your cap table, you could have an advantage as they can open doors to other U.S. funds. Jan from H3 explains the point well. For context, we asked him what would be the benefits for a U.S. fund to be on the cap table? I think it can help, especially when the startup is doing very well. And, you know, then having a strong investor uh, set up really works well. I mean, I... I invested in Inkit together with Kleiner Perkins, you know, in the Series A and then Series B NEA came, you know, and it was a very warm relationship between NEA and Kleiner anyway. And so, you know, so I'm sure that helped. So now you're thinking, Francesca, in this episode, it's all sweetness and light. There are simply no downsides to picking a US fund. But no, don't worry. Now we should discuss how it's not necessarily a glorious haven for European founders. And we can continue rolling our collective eyes when someone from the older generation says something along the lines of, in my day, things were much harder. Thankfully, our guests have come up with a number of factors that founders need to consider when deciding to pick the US fund as their backup. Let's start off with Jan finishing his sentence. In a way. I'd argue the, the danger is as always in the middling cases where startups who have raised from these big brand name VCs, and then maybe things take a bit longer than expected or don't go quite as well, or you're looking at a pivot and it can really become a liability as well. Because if you have one of the, the super big brand names in people, obviously ask questions. Yeah. And touches on an important point here. When a company is not doing so well but has been backed by a famous U.S. fund, there is a lot of pressure on the founder. As typically, and I am stereotyping here, but deals that I've seen U.S. funds do have very high valuations. And there is risk that comes with this. Brianne has a brilliant term for it. The capital foie gras of big checks that look super appealing, valuations that look awesome. I think a lot of the funds that have been coming over have the ability to rate those gigantic checks. and. I guess it's fun to celebrate it in the moment, but it has really awful consequences if you can't take that money and run with it to a really successful outcome, because who can really fund you after that? You need to sell or go public. And I think funds people right to the edge of a cliff, and then I hope you don't fall off it. So be careful what you wish for, Sanders. As Danielle explained very well in episode three, overvaluing your business at an early stage and not perform well means that founders can really struggle to raise follow-on funding. Another point that Jan addresses is that being so far away from a US fund's headquarters, you can feel quite neglected and feel essentially like a small fish in a very big, faraway pond. It used to be the case that the feeling was often that a fund which is far away geographically can also be mentally far away. 
when stuff goes wrong and things are complicated. I believe if you're sitting on the West Coast and your Berlin deal isn't going so great, it's easier to write it off than if you're here deep in the ecosystem. But to be honest, I haven't seen, you always have your funds, which you like, and then others where you get a little bit more kind of war warning signs. But I don't think that's really the case right now for people coming in from the US, etc. Because I'd say many of them, the big Bessemers, NEAs and A6CZs and so on, know the value of their brand in the long-term game we're all in. Your personal reputation and the value of your firm brand is so important. Stuff can go wrong, but yeah, I don't think you can really mess around without people catching onto it very quickly. Although Yang caveats his point with the fact that the top funds will be unlikely to forget you, Harry Briggs from Omos concurs that without feet on the ground, he also knows founders that have felt neglected. Particularly for those funds where, you know, they don't have people on the ground in Europe. There's a danger that you can be a sort of forgotten child, a sort of orphan. One example, I heard the second hand, but Charlotte Tilbury were fortunate enough to raise from Sequoia before Sequoia had an office here. And they've done an amazing job with, for example, Unity and Klarna, to the best of my knowledge. But for whatever reason, they just seemed not very interested in Charlotte Tilbury. And my understanding is it didn't turn up to board meetings. And when Charlotte Tilbury exited for something like one and a half billion, pretty good. It didn't even get mentioned on Sequoia's website. They didn't even tweet it. They didn't even, it just didn't matter to them because it wasn't a Stripe or a Klarna or whatever. And I like, it probably still helped to have Sequoia on their, on their cap table. It probably added to the prestige, might've helped them hire some good people. But I, I think there is always a bit of that danger that if you're not one of the real, real high flyers of the portfolio, you can become a bit of a sort of forgotten child, right? but forgotten child's a weird term. Like there's like, people don't forget children, but <laughs> long lost cousin or something. I don't know. <laughs> Paul, a partner at Lightspeed also has some interesting comments to add on this topic. I think that founders, at least that I've spoken to are pretty savvy in terms of the U.S. funds that they're talking to, which bucket of those they fit into. And in some cases they want one in particular, it's not always the best. It's not always that they're looking for like a local partner. They might actually feel like they've got amazing local investors and they don't need that perspective. They want a different perspective and they want to get someone outside of the region. So I think that's probably like the perception of U.S. investors was mostly that they were not familiar with the local market, but they brought a different, you know, perspective to a company primarily from Silicon Valley and that would be seen as valuable. Now what's happening, firms like Lightspeed, but also other kind of U.S. peer funds are hiring local teams that know the market actually really well. And we like to think that we can offer the best of both worlds. See the local perspective with the, you know, a, a tier one sort of U.S. platform and lots of local support. So that's what we're trying to deliver. I think that, you know, I don't know, my sense is that European founders in the first couple of years that I was here really gave U.S. funds a bit more credit than they deserved. Um, I just, you know, I'd sort of raised from some and I'd sort of saw what European funds were offering and it didn't feel all that different to me. I think that has largely gone away and now founders are really thoughtful about, you know, which partner, which fund, and it's not just, is it U.S. or not anymore. So there we have it. The solution, founders. Go for a U.S. fund that has hired European talent and then you get the best of both worlds. But is it really that simple? I want to pause here for a short interlude to promote a Women in VC event. 
WVCE is the first pan-European event for women in venture capital. Occurring on the 26th to 27th of September in Paris, the goal of WVCE is to bring women active in the European VC ecosystem together to affect maximum inclusion and promote positive change. Hundreds of investors, GPs, LPs, founders, and dreamers are attending. And for all the ladies and VC listeners, please use the code WVCEASSOCIATED20 to receive 20% off your ticket. So back to business. I think it shouldn't be underestimated how challenging it is for founders to raise funds. They face many pressures, such as when to decide to raise, how much they should raise, at what valuation, and some who, as an ideal suite of investors, should they like to have on their cap table. Then they have to present this proposal to the VC world, which, although growing, is a small bubble, and hope they'll be able to raise their round before running out of funds. The pressure is monumental, and I have the utmost respect for what is essentially a grueling process where your passion and beliefs are pulled apart by individuals who don't know you or your business nearly as well as you do. One founder once told me that a pitch was a bit like being on an operating table whereby your surgeon is a sceptical banker. Ouch, in all sense and purposes. Dennis, the founder of Prolific Machines, had a very negative experience trying to raise funds in Europe for his lab-grown meat company. Fresh out of a PhD in stem cell biology, he was well-equipped with an armory of knowledge and passion to apply it to an impactful mission. But unfortunately, his pitch fell on unfriendly ears in Europe. Honestly, I found American VCs to be much more palatable than European VCs, at least for me. Not that you ladies are wonderful, but don't, don't, don't date me wrong. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but I, but you're speaking you, to one American one, basically. So you, you, you guys, I are, am wonderful. <laughs> you guys are not representative of European If I met you guys uh, when I was doing the seed round, chosen differently. But in terms of palatable, is is it back to that story of risk appetite and just how they see the world and then the valuation component and and you want to you're drawn to that pace that understanding that you know these things will take time but need a lot of financing etc right just a good example it's like one of the european vcs that i was speaking to during trying to raise my seed round they were like they asked me to give like a 10-year discounted cash flow of like how much money we were going to make in the next 10 years and i like as soon as they asked for that i was like you guys have no fucking clue what you're getting yourselves into because <laughs> it's like with real innovation you have no idea how long it's going to take so it, and if you knew then there would be no point doing the innovation because you'd already have the answers and so when you're like really trying to invent something from scratch you don't know what your 10-year discounted cash flow is going to be because you don't know whether it's going to take you two years to build this or 10 years to build this and most VCs don't like that, <laughs> understandably, because they, they need to make a return for them to make a living. And so there's like very few VCs who will look at something as risky as prolific and be like, cool, I'm going to do it because I think it'll be good for the world if it works. 
So maybe European VC, even with the influx of US capital, is still not a friendly place for those who have a big vision but limited miles under their belt. Hussein from Hoxton also has a hypothesis around how, in some cases, the US is still a better location for founders to set up their business. I still think if you're an enterprise software company, you should probably relocate and build your go market and your commercial function in the US. I don't think it makes very much sense to do that in Europe. I think it's too challenging. In our view, or is to basically spend a lot of time with our founders, making those connections, trying to fill in the gaps and get them to learn. It's less about teaching. It's more about just pointing them in the right direction to where the books are. They can go figure it out for themselves because you can't really teach these kinds of things. And, and, you know, I would say like we had a board meeting less than a month ago where one of my companies did more in revenue in quarter one than they did all of 2021 combined, which is a good thing. The company's going through scale. And we have, and they're thinking about a fundraise. They don't need any money. They've played money in the bank and they're thinking about the fundraise and they were thinking about the future. And I was like, look, I don't think you guys should actually go out and do a fundraise right now because I'm looking at quarter two, quarter three, quarter four. And I know what your attrition rate is on your sales team. This is a, a more of an software type business. And I know how many of your salespeople now, because we have some data, luck out, right? They don't make their numbers, which means that if you want to deliver the kind of hyperscale growth that you're talking about. You should be onboarding this many salespeople in any one month, knowing that a bunch of them are going to drop out in order for you to keep your growth rate. Otherwise, what ends up happening is your salespeople get peak productivity, and then you have a certain amount of them, and you can forecast what your revenues are, and it's flat. And if you're that founder, you have to grow your sales team by basically 100% every other month to keep up with the growth. How can you possibly do that without building that as a core muscle in, in the company? and go out for a fundraise at the same time, right? There are only so many problems that you can tackle as a first-time founder and a first-time CEO, or even if you're like a serial founder or a serial CEO, you can only do so many things at the same time. If you have tons of money in the bank, go figure out how to build that muscle. And there, there's just not as much experience in the building of the machine. There's a lot of experience in understanding the output of the machine in Europe, but the actual building of the machine is still a bit of a dark art in, in Europe. And I think that's where you want to, that's where you want to stack as much of an advantage to founders as possible. And that, that's what I mean when I say 1970 style venture, like it's weird. Like my, my dream is not to build the venture fund of 2021, right? Like a tiger or an Andreessen and like staff it up with a bunch of people and have like platform services and talent services. My goal is to do people did exceptionally well in 1970s and just do that exceptionally well in 2022 and run a really small firm that can do that really well. It's a very different vision than most other venture people probably have. A great antidote there by Jose about how being based in the US, you have access to a wealth of knowledge from a very mature ecosystem. Whether you like the old school approach or not, there's something for everyone. Interestingly, Anna, founding partner of Trellis Road, has spent some time in San Francisco, has a different opinion of the US compared to Hussein and Dennis, particularly when applied to her investment sector, specifically food tech. For us, I, I think it depends a lot on what sector you're active in. For us, focusing on software technology, especially within internet infrastructure, cloud infrastructure, it became very evident as soon as we started spending time in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, that 90% of all the relevant people for us were there. That was the simple reality. And that was much more extreme than I think I realized <laughs> sitting in London and in Stockholm, reading about the Silicon Valley in San Francisco. It was very much of a 
yeah and a whole moment as you say like suddenly you're in a location where people would say oh you you should talk to my neighbor he founded this company and then you have these very ad hoc very almost like accidental relational chains of people introducing one another to each other and and i think that's something that you need a, a very high density of relevant people to achieve that ecosystem effect and i think it has been true within software it has been true especially with in, in some parts of software that you do have that density in san francisco silicon valley that makes it very hard for any other place to really compete with access uh, in that sense I, I think that is one of the things that zoom and, and different types of technologies is really democratizing which is a bit silly to say but I, I think like now it's as easy to schedule a zoom call with someone tomorrow even if you're in the same city as scheduling meeting for a coffee and i think that is happening and i think uh, it's yeah it's great because it's a lot of knowledge that is suddenly available to a much larger group of individuals so i don't think it's that much about sort of perception it's more about are you on people's radar are you top of mind when they start thinking about certain topics and i think that obviously if you look at other sectors such as food tech then san francisco isn't that relevant at all i very rarely uh, see people arguing that founders or startups should be in that region from a food perspective because you have much more knowledge and you have a higher density of relevant people in other locations like in, in europe you have the netherlands for example where you have so much academia so many investors so many entrepreneurs same to berlin for example where you have a lot of food tech activity that are at least equally relevant to san francisco i would say so from talking about how we are seeing the positives of international knowledge sharing perhaps we should discuss the negatives harking back to what brianne mentioned earlier about Sorbois, harry briggs explains it well the bar is gradually rising and there are companies that are growing perhaps 80 or 90% year on year, which would have seemed pretty darn good a decade ago, but now seems a bit slow and they might struggle to raise capital because there are other companies growing 3X or 4X year on year and the capital is concentrating probably more and more into those. And then I would say because software companies have just be, had such an amazing track record over the last decade, I'd say that there are certain sectors that probably more unloved than they should be. I think there's still probably not that much capital around for deep tech or sort of deeper health tech, for example, because there could be probably not enough specialist investors in that space. And for example, marketplaces have for some reason fallen a bit out of fashion. So there's probably a bit more group think because everyone's reading the same blogs and everyone's following the same global funds. It's, there's a bit of a kind of feast or famine effect where if you're in the sexy sector showing the right metrics, then, you know, you've got people banging down your door and offering you just totally insane terms, but outside that bubble, maybe it's still pretty hard. So what Harry is insinuating here is that even though the market appears healthy from the outside in, especially in some sectors like software, it still can be hard because in those markets, you're under enormous amounts of pressure 
And then others, you're looking at a bit of a tumbleweed situation as investors are skeptical as to whether they will gain outsized returns. So what on earth should a founder do when deciding to start a company? Well, one thing to pay heed to, dear listeners, is that investors' investment strategies don't always find the non-obvious unicorns. Here's Harry Briggs on the topic. I think one thing, one thing that one thing that's a, a bit of a, a strange phenomenon over the last two or three years is that because if I look at my investing career, I would say that most of my best investments have been non-consensus. The Hutt Group was very non-consensus. I think we were the only people interested at the time. Sorry, that may be wrong, but as far as I'm aware, GoCardless was non-consensus. Revolut was very non-consensus. Whereas in the last few years, it seemed as though betting on consensus has been the right way to go because if it's enterprise software, you can raise it three times the valuation nine months later and three times that valuation nine months after that. And, and everyone feels really smart. But I think in the history of venture, that has generally not been the case. And I think we've been in this incredible bull run and probably quite a lot of investors may have learned the wrong lessons from it, which is that investing in the obvious thing with the good metrics has been the right thing to do because everyone's always prepared to pay more than you are. But I think in the longer term, we will get back to a world where actually the real outlier returns are the things that look really strange or weird or dumb at the time you do it. Like a lot of people thought Revolut was the dumbest investment ever in 2015. And there were great reasons mainly the founder, but, but it was, there were a lot of very good reasons not to do that investment. And likewise, the Hutt group seems to have plenty of naysayers even today, but if you look at the stock market, but it's, but fundamentally there were some really interesting reasons to, to go against the consensus there when, when we, when we first came in. From a personal experience, I've seen firsthand the impact of FOMO within the VC industry. But as Harry highlights, although money can help spur growth, it is by no means the key lever to success. There are plenty of startups out there that have term sheets thrown up by multiple VCs with insane evaluations. And then six months later, they are back out to raising again, refine further capital to help them identify product market fit. In this short clip, we've asked Jan from HV what he thinks are the pros and cons of the flood of investor capital coming into the market. Good question. I'd argue sometimes it can be distracting in a way. I've been also thinking about, for example, my LinkedIn consumption, which I think LinkedIn is becoming a seriously depressing place because you see everyone's posting about huge success stories left, right, and center. And you look at the inadequacy or the whatever you're doing and it just feels so um, yeah, inadequate, exactly. So I think sometimes it can be distracting because in the end you are building a business. You're trying to make customers happy, not investors trying to make your employees happy, again, not investors. So there it is, folks. As a short summary on this final episode, we have discussed how this influx of capital has fueled the development of a rich and successful European tech ecosystem and some pretty hefty salary expectations to boot. US funds have not only brought capital, but glamorous prestige, a rich network, phenomenal branding, and their decades of experience to enrich this ecosystem. However, some investors that we spoke to on the topic of accepting funds from US VCs stated that it could be a double-edged sword, as many US funds offer inflated valuations, which, as sexy as they seem, mean that if the founders don't reach the extraordinary high growth rates that they're expected to, they'll be unable to raise their next round. Other consequences may be that you feel rather neglected so far away from your fund's HQ, as the saying goes. 
out of sight, out of mind. However, many US funds seem to have tackled the latter by cleverly snapping up or collaborating with US VC talent in order to form a powerhouse lineup on the cap table. He also discussed how, in some cases, the European VC scene is not ready to embrace some founder types, having not had nearly as much experience backing young university or college dropouts. And in some cases, even European investors agree that relocating to Silicon Valley allows you to gain the unfair advantage from gathering knowledge from the high density of successful founders still based in the area. However, a silver lining of COVID is that the acceleration of the distribution of that knowledge can be shared and deals can be exchanged virtually, something that can be seen as a positive for the tech industry. However, we then took a negative twist to our narrative. This influx of capital and virtual knowledge exchange can, as a whole, lead to founders and investors overbetting on certain sectors and neglecting others, leading to unhealthy patterns. A top tip from Paul from Lightspeed to both founders and investors alike, having a non-consensus approach to your investment decisions, whether that's time or funds, could get you better returns. And finally, I very much like our closing point to this episode, with Jan highlighting that although investors play a key role in fueling this ecosystem, really, at the end of the day, it's the talent you hire and the customers you acquire that, in the end, produces a successful business. And I think it is always important to recalibrate and reflect on this key point. And on that final note, my dear listeners, it was such a pleasure to share these episodes with you. And as always, thank you to our wonderful guests and Danielle and Tendi, who have made this season such a special one. As mentioned halfway through the episode, if you are a lady in VC, do attend the WVCE event and I'd love to see you there. And as always, if you've enjoyed the season, please do share it far and wide. We'd also love to hear from you. So feel free to reach out on our email, which is associatedpodcast at gmail.com and our Twitter handle, which is associated underscore pod. Until next time. And thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.